Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our 38th episode with me, Nicholas Berl-Lumblad, and... With me, Richard Allen. So, Richard, um, we know you're an avid archaeologist. It's one of your many identities. You have an Indiana Jones-like ability to wade through ruins and find gone civilizations and 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 tracks. And I, we we discussed this, and we said it might be actually quite interesting to walk and wade through the ruins of technology, the many technologies that have been discontinued or never took off, or you know, in in many ways, the the sort of failures that can tell a story that's really instructive about how technology is evolving. And, and we had a couple of, of uh, ancient examples that we'll get back to, but there's a more recent one, and I'm not sure we would call it a failure, but we can discuss. It was recently announced that Facebook was uh, ceasing its facial recognition uh, work, or at least you know withdrawing its facial recognition capabilities. What, why is that, do you think? And how can we how can we think about that? Well, um, Nicholas, thanks for the archaeological uh, leading, as that allows me to make one of my favourite puns, which is, uh, you know, uh, I used to work in archaeology, but then found that my career was uh, entirely behind me. And oh, oh, as, as, as well as, but then I had a career in ruins. Yeah, so, so um, but let's, yeah, tech in ruins. So, so the uh, the facial recognition one is interesting. So, so at one level, it may be quite simple, um, which is that in February of this year, there was a class action settled, I think in the state of Illinois in the US, in which Facebook ended up um, having to pay out $650 million, which is quite a lot of money. And, uh, uh, you know, in chunks of money too, uh, it's something that can only, I think, really happen in the US. I think the EU's opening up. It's one of these class actions that says, look, all of these people in Illinois suffered damage. Uh, I think the Heart of the allegation was essentially that they hadn't really consented to the facial recognition, and and therefore it's harmful without proper consent, and therefore they should pay out the money. And at one level, it may simply be that you know the lawyers have been beavering away doing a risk assessment since then, and have found that whether you know they like the tech or not, it's just too high risk to deploy, and that seems reasonable to me. So maybe maybe one instance actually, uh, uh, some fairly rare instance where. It is the law, it's regulation that has effectively stopped technology being deployed. And, and from Facebook's point of view, the, the benefit of the technology is, was quite marginal in the sense that uh, I was there actually when they first you know, really got going with this stuff. And the idea was, look, you know, we want Facebook to be sticky. We, we want people to engage. Um, if we can automatically flag an uploaded photo as being of you, we can shove it in front of you, one of these little notifications going, hey, there's a new photo of you. And you're going to engage more with the site. So the facial recognition was really about that. The, the heart of it, at least in the first instance, was just finding photos of you and putting them in front of you and then making the site more engaging. Now, it may be that that benefit is, is you know, they can probably quantify how much more engagement you get is marginal compared with the risk. And the risk is there both because of the US class action, but also actually because the EU has passed the GDPR in the intervening period, which actually has quite a lot to say about bi- biometric data. And lots of other countries around the world are passing similar legislation. So in this case, I say it may be regulation stops play in terms of Facebook doing a risk assessment and saying, look, cost benefit of this particular technology, uh, you know, costs are increasing, benefits are maybe not as much as we'd hoped. Therefore, safest thing to do is to get rid of it. 
So that's interesting because it, it leads us to question or it leads us to a prediction. And the prediction would be that you should see facial recognition be discontinued by other actors as well. You should see the same kind of decisions come out of Google and Apple and others who are engaging in facial recognition because the technology as a whole has turned out to be too legally risky. So so if you're right, uh, it, it would seem that what we will what we will should expect is to see this technology overall be rolled back and we'll all sort of just wonder at the fact that facial recognition was so broadly deployed uh, in the 2000s uh, whereas it's now only you know in the future maybe deployed for police or authorities or security reasons um so that's one case of a technology do you think that's going to happen by the way so do you think I, that's i was, i think for, for facebook in particular there's a combination of the facial recognition and social which is is particular so so imagine other deployments where say I'm just uploading my own collection of photos to my own cloud service or device and the provider of the photos app is searching my photos on my device or within my cloud, it may be that the, the legal risk assessment is actually different for that um, because it's sort of all taking place within that, that environment of the individual's data space. Of course, what was different about the Facebook one was, you know, essentially it was saying that once we've got this biometric uh, template of your face, uh, it can now be used in this social uh, space where the photos and the content may come from, you know, literally billions of other people. So I'm just wondering, there may be an element in there, again, I've, I've not done the legal analysis, but I think the legal analysis may prove to be a little bit less risky for um, services where it's your photos on your device or in your private cloud space, and the templates never go outside of them. I think the other element that just uh, um, candidly that Facebook, I think, is challenged around is in terms of the consent piece. So again, you know, um, I think the challenge, I saw some of these little challenges previously was, was around the fact of whether or not the consent was sufficient for, for these templates to be created. Uh, and that's actually quite difficult to do. So what Facebook did was say, hey, do, you know, do you, want, do you want to be automatically tagged in photos? We understand that. And, you know, click here to learn more. We create a biometric template, blah, blah, blah. But it was, you know, the, the details were quite a long, long way away from the user. Um, uh, difficult to fit into a tiny little screen on a phone, <laughs> how biometric uh, templating works. So, so I think they also have a sort of consent issue. So those may be the two differences. And there may be the other services who feel more confident, firstly, that the, the app operations are happening in a more private space. And secondly, uh, they may feel more confident about their own consent mechanisms and that they've got more robust consent mechanisms. But but you're right to say it does create a, a question of everything. Yes, uh, you can ask that question. You know, if if somebody has a hundred photos of me on a you know and they're putting in them in a Google or an Apple or whatever photo service, and they're creating a biometric template, and my understanding is you you, know, you can certainly do that from a hundred photos. You can do that from a few dozen photos actually. So they've got a biometric template of me and it's labeled Richard Allen and I've not been involved in that transaction or consented at all. Yeah, maybe maybe we are going to hit sort of similar risk issues. I guess the difference is I won't know that. <laughs> I don't know if you, Nicholas Lumblad, in your private Google space, have got 100 photos of me and you've you've created this biometric template. So say on social, it was much more transparent and apparent and therefore a bigger target um, for those who, who had an issue with it legally. 
And unless it's a local graph, I guess that the company hosting the photos would know. It's an interesting question. So yeah. you have one you have one case here of a technology being withdrawn because of, well, we're speculating, but it, it could at least partly be, be because of legal risk and perhaps of public opinion. The, the general sort of pressure on the technology was such that, well, you know, it was it was widely used, but it was now it's now going to be discontinued. Now, there seems to be uh, a ton of other cases. Um, another example of technologies being discontinued uh, should be, for example, that they're surpassed by better technologies. So, so what do you think about MySpace and yeah. Friendster? And, and there are so many services that, I mean, we forget this, right? but there yeah. are so many services that preceded Facebook. What happened there? Yeah, so, so I think in... Um, uh, it's okay. So, so again, it's back, it's back to this sort of engagement point, you, you know, that, that what you've got to do, and I think the Facebook people did this really well, was you, you've got to make it so that people want to keep coming back to the service. Uh, and, and there's a lot of sort of aspects to that. Sometimes it's about, you, you know, the ubiquity of the service. And so we did see services, I think you're obviously familiar, something like Orkut, which was confined <laughs> to, I think, a couple of markets. Brazil was a big one. and uh, India. And in, yeah, so there are a few. But, but you know, is it sufficiently ubiquitous that, that, um, uh, that it, I can have everybody I know on it or I'm having to sort of switch away from the service? So ubiquity is one part of it. Um, you know, the, the clever stuff about uh, Find My Friends uh, stuff, contact importers, which, again, you know, now is sort of super common, and actually, maybe one of those other issues that's challenged on privacy grounds, like you know, are the are the contact identifiers you uploaded from your address book are they yours or are they the third parties? Have they consent or not? We're sure that um, there are cases going through around that as well. Um, but that was the sort of magic as well. There was some magic around making sure that you had enough friends. I think Facebook used to have a recipe and kind of say, look, if we can if we can get people once they're on the service to a sort of critical mass of friends, they get not a huge number, 15, 20 contacts. That's enough to populate their newsfeed to make it interesting for them from, to make them stick around. And some of these others didn't. They, you know, you would have a, you'd sign up uh, and they wouldn't be quite so smart about making sure you had the right number of connections that would, would make you uh, a regular user of the service. So lots, I mean, there's a hundred different sort of tweaks to the way in which the service works, I think that uh, enable some succeed over others. I think perhaps a common pattern of all of them is, you know, they all had, I mean, we know those names because they all had moments where they were the, the shining stars, where everybody was signing up. Uh, the difference was, you know, um, for a Facebook, everybody signed up and they stuck and they have stuck in, in large numbers over the years. For, for these other services, they signed up and then people lost interest and moved away. And mm. so I think the difference is, are you are you able to kind of maintain that level of interest, build on your initial push? Um, and that's the genius, I think, of making a successful web service. Yeah, and, 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 and interestingly then that and that required a better technology, better design, better usability. It was sort of it was it was a fundamentally better technology that replaced one that wasn't as good. I I think about this when it comes to Alta Vista, it used to be the search engine of choice. Uh, Alta Vista simply didn't have the kind of ability to index the web that Google ended up having with uh, PageRank. Yes. And so in that case it was very clear that what left one technology in ruins was that it was being supplanted with another technology that was significant 
significantly markedly better. And I think that's another case that technology is is discontinued. But then, of course, there is always going to be those who say that, you know, I think Alta Vista was always better. Yeah. And, you know, I think that the old technology was always, you know, something I want. And, and there's an interesting case. Did you ever try something called Google Wave? Uh, very briefly. I think like you, I'm a serial uh, uh, signer up of services. And I did briefly, <laughs> but I kind of didn't get it. And I mean, it's interesting that, you know, the Google efforts were to get into the social space. Actually, in some cases, the technology was very good and, and super easy. But for some reason, it missed, uh, you know, and it's really curious. I think, I mean, one of the things we've got to, again, be um, sort of upfront about is that copying is copying is really powerful in this space. Yeah. Um, and, and I think if you, if you, I mean, Facebook's been accused of it, sort of copying stories and things from other services, but, but that's what you do. If you want to be successful, you take these elements. I think in some ways, if you are, if you're not willing to copy, and I think some of the Google efforts were, look, we know how to build something better. We're not just going to copy Facebook. They might actually <laughs> have been more successful had they just copied Facebook and, uh, and just taken the features that people clearly, you know, were using and liking in large numbers. One good example of that is in Russia, where there's a service it's called V-Contactor, which, yep. which uh, you know, is very, you know, every time sort of Facebook would develop something new and they would just take those features and sort of build them in. So uh, this, uh, they, they recognize that, look, it, you don't want to be too proud and go, I'm going to do things differently. If someone's got something, it works really well, then take those features and build them into your product and, and you're more likely to be successful. So as I say, I think sometimes if we're looking at like patterns of failure, it's, well, you know, someone's well-established in the market I'm deliberately going to do something sort of different uh, because I'm going to build this better technology, but you haven't actually <laughs> because the the other person has got the technology that people love. And in that case, to say maybe maybe copying legally, um, yes, copying the ideas and and building something that looks and feels similar but doesn't infringe any any sort of proper intellectual property stuff. Uh, maybe that's uh, the best approach. So being too different sometimes causes failure. And there's also the the other pattern that I think is interesting is one where you're just too early. I'm thinking yeah. about Google Wave. The, the the marketing around Google Wave was that well, you know we are going to supplant email. Email right. has just served its course. It's crazy that we're still sending emails to each other, and we should think hard about what is the alternative to email. And Google Wave sort of really drove that point home, and uh, still failed because most users weren't there yet. Then Slack came along. And arguably, you could say that there are large similarities between what Slack is attempting to do, at least in terms of intention and ambition, and what Google Wave was trying to do with its intention and ambition. So there seems to be at least another failure mode seems to be that you're out of sync with either user behavior or technological capacity, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that actually for a lot of the technologies we use, you know, you go back and you can see a predecessor sort of 15, 20 years before. I mean, all, all the way back, uh, was it Doug Engelbart and his yeah, uh, yeah. sort of uh, Windows icons, mouse pointer. Xerox kind of, Park. And uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Where he demonstrated that the interfaces we all use today that we're using on our computers now way before anyone actually built that stuff. Um, and that was part of it. And I think you're right in the sense Google Wave may be seen as the predecessor of these workplace type applications that people have now where you're integrating all of these uh, information sharing features. Actually, just on that on that track, another one is as Facebook, no, stop calling them that, as 
this company Meta that formerly oh, used sorry, to have yes, a different name as as Meta, um, formerly known as Facebook, formerly, the artists formerly known as Prince. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so Meta incorporating Facebook. So Meta when they you know obviously they're announcing they got this whole metaverse thing and it immediately made me think of Second Life. Ah uh, uh, yes. Yeah, you know, and I've looked at some of the videos, uh, the videos that, that sort of come out from it, and it feels very sort of Second Life Mark II. And Second Life was 2003, so that's 18 years ago. Uh, mm. So in, in the time that that's sort of grown up to be an adult, uh, and I was just looking actually, you know, preparing for, for this conversation to, to see whether Second Life is still going. And that is actually, you know, how Google search uh, has popular questions when you search on And one of them is, is Second Life still alive? And it is, yeah. and apparently it still has a few hundred thousand users. Um, but again, that's one where, you know, a lot of the concepts of the metaverse that are being talked about being built now were there 18 years ago. And I actually think a lot of the challenges, the policy challenges and other challenges that that um, came about when Second Life was built will come up now. Things like, you know, what constitutes sexual abuse in a, a virtual world? Very, very difficult sort of ethical and, and uh, um, uh, political question to kind of work through. Uh, gambling, my understanding was that, you know, uh, Second Life quickly had a problem with the FBI investigating them for gambling because if you've got any kind of virtual world where people can exchange tokens and things, it, uh, it creates an avenue for gambling that is potentially illegal in the US where, where these things are taken very seriously. It's going to be used for money laundering, for example. Yeah, yeah, laundering, yeah. Right. So we're going to hit a, a lot of these things, I think, again, <laughs> um, 18 years on. So, yes, that's another pattern, the, the pattern of the product, which is is actually a viable product. Uh, it's something that you know is going to meet a human need and is going to be successful at some point, but you may be 10, 15, even 20 years ahead of the point at which it's going to get taken up on any kind of mass scale. Yeah, and I think that's so interesting because in many ways it means that if you're if you're in track with user behavior, because I think that's one part, and then on track with the technological capacity needed, then you can hit the sweet spot, and that's when you also reach uh, a stable state. So you can see the same, for example, for all of the uh, early massive um, online role playing game, the multiplayer yes. massive oh, the MMORPGs, yes. uh, where you had uh, you know, you had tons of different games that tried but didn't quite get it because they couldn't have the combination of graphics and they didn't have a good enough server system and then world of warcraft comes along and it manages to keep uh, the throne as the uh, fantasy online role-playing game for a lot of years i have one mm. of my characters i uh, the first character i i created in world of warcraft i created back in 2005 so it's now you know a little bit more than 15 16 years old and there were still people playing from that time so what happens is when technology suddenly matches um the thing you're trying to do and user behavior catches up that's the point at which you can reach the kind of stability that you described earlier with mm. Facebook, right? Yeah, and I think that, again, World of Warcraft is another example. There are lots of online games, but uh, World of Warcraft continually finds a way to keep you in, ways to keep you engaged, both in the design of the game, but also the release of new versions, new editions, new experiences within the game, new classes, new levels. So, so that, again, uh, you, you look at those that succeed and those that fail, and the ones that succeed are ones who master this. Um, you know, uh, Both the base technology has to be really good, but then once you've brought that first crew in and they've had that taste of it, you've got to find a way to kind of keep them engaged over time. 
So we have three failure modes so far. One is that you're sort of you're failing because legal risk is higher than the actual benefit. The second is that you're failing because your technology is simply not good enough. The better technology um, uh, replaces a, a worse technology. And then the third one is is this interesting where you're out of sync. You have to sync with either the state of technology or the state of user behavior. And I think another example of that, or an, a, sort of an, an example of something like that, was what you could find in Google Glass. Did yeah. you ever wear Google Glass? I, I didn't, no. I have to confess, I what? saw it. Yeah. And what, what did they call people in San Francisco bars wearing yeah, Google Glass? Yeah, not only San Francisco, but Seattle. And this is, yeah. this is my point, because uh, different bars uh, would put up signs outside that said, no glass holes, please. I'm sorry about <laughs> That probably make, requires that we mark this one with an e explicit but yeah. and, and that was so interesting to me because it was it was um it was not as if you were asking for a behavior that people would accept as much as you were running into this this sort of absolute boundary of acceptable behavior when you walk into a bar if you walk in with a camera start taking photos of people they will throw you out just yeah. as certainly as they said they didn't want any any glass holes because they felt that what happened was that somebody came in with a camera on their face with the ability to take photos of them in a place where they didn't feel that 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 was most legitimate. Now, and one of the interesting things about Google Glass was that it wasn't released as a mass market product. It was very consciously released in smaller batches to figure out the normative mm. reaction. And then once the normative reaction was clear, it transitioned into not being a mass market consumer product, but into a much more targeted product for telemedicine, for example, or certain kinds of manufacturing. Yeah. And and I think there there is something about... There's something about the normative failure of technology uh, that goes beyond the legal failure, right? Something there that, that seems to be important. Yeah, and, and interesting, I, don't, I mean, Facebook obviously has released its own, uh, sorry, Meta has yes. <coughs> released its own um, similar things, sort of augmented reality glasses with camera and product. And actually, I, I, interesting, I think we're only at the start of really figuring out the norms for ubiquitous camera availability. When you when you stick it on glasses, it becomes you know literally in your face or on your face, and so people are really really super conscious of it. But of course, you know, as the camera technology, as cameras have got smaller, and they now can be mounted on on glasses, one thing, but also you know the ubiquity of cameras on on phones and other devices, I think is I, I don't think we we're in a settled state yet on that. I was interesting actually, a bar I used to go to in Berlin. They banned you from using camera phones, uh, but they had a Polaroid camera behind the bar. And if you wanted a souvenir of your night out at that bar, they would they would like slap your hand down if you got your phone out and give you the Polaroid camera and say, "Take a photo on the Polaroid and take that home with you," um, because they, they wanted to. They they didn't want people to be taking photos of everything all of the time. Um, and again, if you, if you have the experience at like a, a concert or something like that, where oh, you're yeah. sitting behind someone who's got the bloody phone on, like filming the whole thing and the bright light of the their phone while they're filming it's completely crazy. destroys your you know experience. And you're sitting there cursing them. And then 15 minutes later, your favorite song comes on and you've got your phone. Out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yes. so, I still don't think we've got, uh, we've really settled that. But I think the Google Glass example, I say, was one right at the sharp end of it. I think there's a whole sort of long tail of norms and normative behavior about when it's okay. You know, when should you have your camera out? When shouldn't you have your camera out? 
um, that I think, I don't know, there may be some technological fixes there in a way of, you know, that the camera doesn't work in certain scenarios. You, you get it obviously you know, very sadly when there's um, some kind of tragedy in, a, yeah, in the street, yeah. somebody's knocked over and there's, you know, there's five people filming it for every one person who's trying to help. Um, so I say, I think that's that sort of, at the moment, it's like a, a thing we talk about, but I don't think we settled on it. Um, and I certainly think it, it'll, the settlement is a, is really about cameras in the street primarily it's about about the ability to film more cameras that are so small that they're very hard for other people to detect and uh, and when should they be used and when shouldn't they be used that's really interesting the second set of questions about augmented reality uh, which are really quite different ones which is where you're not invading the privacy of others uh, directly through through recording them but you are sort of enhancing your capability to do things. And there you can see lots of questions around, you know, uh, educational settings and things like that. <laughs> like what, what happens when you've got augmented reality, like an open book becomes the only, you know, way in which you can do exams. Like that. So there's a second set of questions about AR, augmented reality, and then this question about filming other people using very small devices about your person. So there's, I, I think, I think you're right, and I think that that's not so much about user behavior catching up or maturing. It's actually about the normative boundary, where where there is like a normative failure of the technology. The technology just doesn't fit into the normative patterns that we have established. And I, I, I really am interested because those change much slower. Uh, than we think. I think it will take a long time before we're comfortable with people having cameras on their faces, taking photos of you without you knowing it. Yeah. Um, and and uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I do think that that's that's an interesting uh, failure mode for technology. And there's there is there are more things that can happen, of course. One is that you can have a business failure. You can be dependent on a lot of different partners in order to get a technology off the ground. And I remember the first iteration of Google Health that was discontinued in I think 2010 was simply discontinued because it was a great idea. It was essentially electronic patient records, something that the European Union is now all gung-ho about, trying to create a single standard um, electronic patient record system. Um, but uh, all of the different providers in the US were quite uninterested in sharing their um, patient records because that was part of what made them sticky. And so you can have another failure mode, which is simply uh, that it's there's no commercial viability right. for a technology that could have quite significant user benefits so that that leaves us with a, a ton of different failure modes are there any more yeah i mean on, on that um i think it may be a related sort of business mode there was at one point a thing which was not supposed to be called a facebook phone but was kind of a facebook phone where where facebook took android um which is a, a, an open operating system in the sense that the co the code can be forked it can be adapted by other people um, but but if you want to take the Android code and you fork it, then if you're not if you're not in the sort of main Google managed thread, then you'll lose things like the Google Play Store and and Google Apps that sort of add a lot of value. But there was a point at which Facebook, sort of, I think, defensively was thinking, you know, can we go off and uh, uh, create our own version of the code, w which would be uh, of an Android phone, effectively, where we wouldn't have the same dependency on Google. And that, that uh, I remember there were some instances where they made it and there were lots of leaks, you know, at the time about them doing it, but they did write some code and they produced some examples of it. I think that really didn't fail again for the commercial reasons that, like, look, absent strong interest from the 
um, I hate the phrase, but OEMs. Uh, OEMs. Yes. Yeah, so they're, they're the people that make the phones, like people like Samsung and others that make the phones, if they're not kind of going to uh, get the phones out to a mass market, if the mobile phone company is not going to push the phones, and if you can't kind of get all the developers to go to a different version of the Play Store that is not the Google managed one, then you haven't got enough components to make this an attractive proposition. Uh, and then you swing back to say, well, your strategy then is is not to create the Facebook phone in inverted commas, but um, to make sure that you can try and get Facebook on every Google phone, every sort of standard Android phone as issued by Samsung and others. Um, but so, so I think that's one where actually you can probably look at the mobile phone space generally and say it is really interesting. And there have been lots of different attempts actually to do this, um, to create you know forked versions of Android because a lot of the heavy lifting has been done by Google. <laughs> you know, they pay for it, so they've done the heavy lifting. They kept this thing open. You can take a fork version. You can go off and create your own uh, um, sort of uh, version of a, an Android phone, and you can get into the marketplace. That hasn't really happened at scale, and I think it hasn't happened because of those business relationships, all of those business pieces that uh, need to be fall, falling into place. A special case of that kind of failure is, I think, the intellectual property rights failure, where the failure mode is simply that you can't get the rights or you can't clear the rights in an effective enough way, where you have plenty of different technologies that that have been very effective but have failed because of intellectual property reasons. I think, you know, you can think about Napster as being the prime example of something that was technologically efficient and had large user demand. So both of those two that we talked about earlier were in place, but there was not an intellectual property rights clearing system that could make Napster a viable business model. And same then for the even more efficient distribution model of CASA, the peer-to-peer models for distributing music. Extraordinarily efficient, very sort of sought after from users, huge demand for music, but the rights weren't there. So those are also now passed off to the scrap heap of history where, where sort of those technologies never, never managed to take off in a big way because they didn't have the right rights clearing system. Does that sound yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, so I think some of the peer-to-peer technology sort of has been incorporated by by streaming services, but streaming services yeah. generally, you're right, they're more interested in the, they want the central point of control. <laughs> That's where they'll exercise the the rights management. So rights management sort of dictates that. So you're right to put that out. And, and I remember, yeah, I, um, Daniel Ek, the guy who set up Spotify, I heard him talk one time about, you know, sort of sitting on the, uh, uh, steps of the record company offices, you know, for months banging on the door going, you know, uh, I can give you some money if you'll license this stuff to me. I want to do it in a legal way. And it was a really a strong uphill battle. So you're right. So music, online music distribution, legal online music distribution could have happened a lot sooner had uh, the record companies wanted wanted to go that way rather than sort of fighting it, which they did for a long time. Uh, and you're right, and things be interesting to sort of t- test that proposition. From a pure net- network bandwidth point of view, uh, we're probably in a much less efficient model than we could be uh, yeah. from a technological point of view. So, so, so rather than doing the peer-to-peer where everybody's sort of sharing with uh, people based on, on sort of uh, technical proximity or you know network proximity we've ended up with the big streaming services sticking lots and lots of hardware for caching into uh, the networks um, because that way they retain the control all the way from their originator to the end user very interesting yeah to model how how much more efficient our networks would be if rights management didn't get in the way of that technology being 
user. That's not to make an argument for or against no, 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 you know, but, copyright, but, but just to say from a pure technical point of view, we may be using a less efficient technology just because of rights management. And to the theme that we're talking about, you could argue that some technical models fail because they, they don't manage to integrate other uh, rule sets that we think are important. I mean, and it's not just about the legal rule sets, it's about intellectual property rights, for example. Same, same case for BitTorrent, which turned out to be terribly efficient because you could distribute uh, downloading in a really mm. interesting way. And it's still used by, interestingly, some gaming companies as they distribute updates, etc. So I, th- I think there is like a technological failure mode, which is that you're that you simply don't, you're not able to not just manage the commercial relationships, but clear the rights. Which yeah. brings us to, to sort of yet another form of failure that I think is really interesting. And that is that is almost like losing the battle of the conceptual structure of the internet. Mm. And and what I'm, I'm thinking about here are the many different ways in which the internet could have evolved over time. If you look at the early standards that were being produced and suggested in the W3C, the standards organization, the de facto standards organization and and one of them that i i'm i'm really i'm returning to a lot these days is the pix standard do you remember that uh, i i don't know you don't yeah so you the, see that's how far that's how far back this moved. is moved yeah yes so the pix standard is really it was a standard for content so right. you're supposed to mark up content and then uh, filter providers could use the ah, markup yeah. of the content to filter it at the edges of the network rather than filtering at the core. Yes. So instead of having large, you know, if, if PIX really had uh, as a standard, as a, a standard uh, brought its own technology, we would all have individual filters on our computers rather than having central takedown and content moderation at the platforms. So there was like a a very different paradigm of thinking around content associated with the PIC standard than uh, the one that we have ultimately ended up with. It seems to me that there's a failure mode here too, which is is just losing the battle of the concept of the concept of the idea of the mental model that we're using does that seem right yeah uh, that and, and maybe i mean just you describe it uh be interested in your reaction but it sounds like um sometimes underestimating how much work people are prepared to put in uh yeah. so i can imagine that the you know a content market and actually um uh social media sort of looks at this has looked at this is that if the if a user you know, the, the winner is the one that allows the user just to stick the stuff up there. The one that says, look, you know, before your content can be shared, we need you to, you know, flag certain characteristics of it. We need you to make certain declarations. That just that extra bit of friction is problematic. So I think, again, that may be a, a broader theme, which is is there may be really, really good technologies, really rational, really logical, as anything that comes out of W3C would be, but they require uh, a certain amount of friction and they lose to alternatives that are frictionless, but maybe carry, you know, frictionless upfront, but then maybe carry a lot of kind of lagging friction and end up causing a lot of problems. So you're right. There's a world in which, you know, there's world A in which uh, all of the tools that we use have a certain amount of sort of uh, content um, flagging and categorization and, you know, once the content's up, it really, really helps us all to sort through and get the right content and not the bad content versus world B in which people just throw stuff out there. And then after the event, someone has to go and clean it all up and figure out what this content is and classify it. And world B seems to have won in that case. And I wonder if there may be other examples where, say, it's the friction that 
that means that the better model doesn't work or the conceptually better model doesn't work. Well, and, and it's interesting because if you think back to 1996, 97, 98, there were lots of companies, small startups that were going gung-ho on filter software. Yes. You know, you install this filter software on your computer and it will filter out all the bad stuff. And, you know, you and child safety was the question of installing the right filters on your computer. Remember, you have to have the right child safety filters, etc. And this was a, a huge debate and partly also the debate behind the CDI 230 that libraries wanted to install filters or should be required to install filters on all computers to make sure that there was no indecent uh, content being available through those uh, publicly funded computers. And so it, there's, there's something here where there was like an entire industry the filtering industry yes. just sort of came up on this promise and was just wiped out there's no single i mean mention fast three filtering companies mm -hmm. that are not associated with with which large-scale filtering right yeah i i don't know if it's interesting so so we're we're probably a little too early to say but with the uh, the kind of the legislation that's coming like the digital services act and the uk online safety bill maybe <laughs> just maybe the filtering will actually be a technology that was ahead of its time. It's one of those that, you know, version one wasn't going to work, but maybe there will be a, a second wave that will be in part driven by regulation, that the the risk of not putting it in place uh, may mean that now the friction and all the effort is worth it. Uh, and it may work in a slightly different way. I mean, I could imagine, for example, AI-driven content labeling. So you use AI to label the content and then and then apply filters based on the the AI labeling rather than you know manual labeling or very so heavily frictionful labeling. But we may end up in a world where where I wonder whether filters are not going to be more common. I think particularly again if you look at something like the online safety bill in the UK, it, it talks about regulating content that is not illegal but that some people may find distressing i think they use this concept of psychological harm which is, is going to be extraordinary trying to unpick what that actually means uh, from a legislative point of view but but you can imagine that you know one of the responses to this maybe if i'm a company executive now being threatened with prosecution for failing to pre prevent psychological harm to my users uh filtering could be a very powerful tool i'm going to offer you the user an ability to set your threshold for what is going to cause you psychological harm and then i'm going to undertake to keep that content away from you uh, uh and that way you know you're setting like a personalized almost set of moderation standards i think you used that framing earlier um that actually i could imagine driven by legislation maybe that is something that we are going to come back to in the next two or three years and it's a good point because much of the failure of the pick standard was also that it encoded a ton of bias it sort of it it allowed people to filter out things that people didn't think you should be allowed to filter out so yeah. it would for example it would classify uh, gay content and say that if you want to you should just remove all of the gay content from the internet here's your gay filter which was crazy right because it was creating this ability to really implement your biases at the edges of the network hmm. so what What instead happened was that we were forced to negotiate the biases at the core of the network, where sort of the platforms are now essentially tasked with negotiating what biases we should we should incorporate beyond what's illegal, to your point, and and see where the psychological harm limits are and, and do that. So it's sort of a, but and, and I guess that perhaps I'm being too flippant about this not being an industry because there are many companies that use this in order to not have employees be distracted by, for example, Facebook. So I guess that if I were to ask your former 
colleagues at Facebook, they would say, you know, we, we are filtered out at many, many workplaces across the world. And there is a very live filtering industry that, that is, uh, is regulating workplace access to the internet, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and But then just to build on your question, the filtering, I think that, you know, um, if we just take one of the sort of hot debates at the moment, uh, um, which is around trans identity, uh, you can imagine, you know, um, uh, so, so people who follow this debate, you know, um, broadly speaking, and I'm careful where I go here, but but um, if somebody that there are uh, particularly sort of women from a feminist tradition who raise questions, which a lot of trans people feel is questioning their own uh, existence and identity and therefore is really problematic. Now, that seems to me like squarely in the definition of something causing psychological harm. So if you're saying, you know, from a point of view of a service provider, uh, if if somebody who was trans felt that that kind of commentary was causing them psychological harm, even though it's legal, they would want that filtered out. Um, On the other side... (laughs) You might get people who are involved in the in the debate from the, the, the this sort of um, particular sort of uh, brand of um, or, or uh, angle feminist sort of philosophical angle who would say equally that they want filtered out the people who are attacking them for expressing those views. And so, if your test is psychological, because that's causing them psychological harm, being criticised for expressing their views is causing them psychological harm. So you would end up in exactly in that world where, in order to prevent the psychological harm. You have to have filters in place where uh, these two groups no longer see what the other group is saying about them. <laughs> uh, that would be the way that you meet the legal requirement, uh, uh, which is kind of extraordinary. And so, yeah, and if you're uh, offended by homosexuality and you feel that seeing, you know, photographs of two men kissing, two women kissing, uh, causes you psychological harm, and that's the test you're applying. I'm not, you know, it's not me to decide what causes you psychological harm. Again, you would want that gay filter, uh, and you would expect it, and you would say to the service provider, if you don't give me that, then I'm going to go to the regulator and say, your service caused me psychological harm, because me showed me pictures of two people of the same gender kissing each other. Hmm. Uh, and the regulator's going to have to decide. The legislation says they should have prevented the psychological harm, also probably says they should be in favor of equality which way are they going to go <laughs> this is this is really interesting because it brings us back it is sort of it gives us the reverse of the first failure mode yeah. so an industry might in some cases be reliant on there being a legal prescription for a certain outcome in order to be effective and working that's a little bit what we see with the digital signatures uh, technology right yeah. digital signatures can't work unless there's like a legal definition of when they are work when they work and when they can replace a physical signature etc so so there is a a lack of enabling technology that can also lead to a technological failure. And then a lot of people are sort of thinking that this might happen to crypto because crypto doesn't have the kind of enabling technology that allows you to understand what it is. Is it an asset? Is it a currency? Is it, you know, what is it? And so, so there's like a, fa- there's a, an inversion of the first failure mode is the lack of a legal enabling infrastructure. And you could say that the filtering industry, for better or worse, because what you're describing is, is somewhat Orwellian, uh, but for better or worse, the filtering industry requires that 
enabling legislation that forces you to differentiate between individualized psychological harm and hence then filters would be absolutely necessary at the edges of the network because there's going to be no core common definition of psychological harm that can be applied at the platform itself so you're going to have to individualize that and then push it out to uh, to the users to define themselves this i think it's super interesting because it it sort of it gives us this other failure mode that that i think is uh is really quite yeah. extraordinary uh, uh- yeah, that, right. I mean, that, that relationship, the relationship between regulation and technology is fascinating. I'll just give you another another failure on the regulatory side, actually, is interesting, that the UK government a few years ago uh, passed a law which essentially says, you know, all websites offering adult services have to have an age check ca- capability. And that's quite controversial for all sorts of reasons. The typical way you do it is, you know, you'd ask for a credit card, which is a proxy for uh, for being age 18. And of course, then that means that somebody somewhere potentially has a database of everybody who's tried to access adult websites and so on. Uh, and so it, it's never been implemented. So that the and every few months they debate it and go, we must get on and implement this thing. Um, so the regulation says, it sort of mandates a technology, uh, but the the sort of social I don't know um, social norms are. I mean, you know, there's soft support for it. If you ask people, they go, "Yes, damn right, adults I should have uh, age checks." But but it's not the sort of hot burning issue for most people most of the time. And as I say, when you get into, get into the detail, there's lots of sort of awkwardness around it. Um, you know, the people who offer the age check service are often the adult industry providers. What happens with the service that has content that doesn't offer the age check? Do you, you know, are we going to have a massive network level blocking? Uh, what about the existence of services? Some, some, you know, mainstream services will have nudity and pornography uh, available within them. How much nudity and pornography does it have to be before you, you know, have this sort of mandated uh, age verification service, all that sort of stuff. So there it's interesting that the, the regulation has mandated a technology but not yet been implemented. Um, so I say, I think you've got, it's an interesting sort of matrix. Sometimes you've got, technology that's out there but regulation changes and or court cases clarify uh, uh that the, re- the technology is problematic actually last week we talked about online behavioral advertising that's one that may end up in the similar space to facial recognition it may be that there are class actions and there are problems with it uh or privacy law is tightened and that technology becomes deprecated to use the fancy word so <laughs> there's technology that exists and is sort of pushed out by regulation there's technology that regulation demands <laughs> but is uh uh not not yet necessarily implemented but regulation is saying you must have this technology and then there's technologies that are not explicitly demanded by the regulation like the age verification is, was explicitly demanded but something like filtering where it's not an explicit demand but the only way for a tech company or the most logical way for a tech company to meet that regulatory requirement is to use that technology. Um, so there's very interesting interplay between yeah, tech and some of these technologies. And I think you can add another uh, example here that's uh, quite fascinating, and that is digital rights management, the DRM yes. technologies that were embedded in legislation, protected in legislation as technical measures, right? And and the idea was that you you couldn't tinker with them, you couldn't um, uh, reverse engineer them or figure out how to remove them because that in itself was made illegal. But those failed because of friction, to your earlier point, right? The friction that they introduced was so great that people worked actively to remove them to the point where streaming has made 
made DRM uh, a, a more marginal phenomenon than everyone thought that it was going to be, right? Yeah, it's, it's sort of invisible to you. Um, yeah. Actually, and then the you talk about the copyright stuff, you then end up potentially with with um, conflicting regulatory requirements. So, so you have you have a regulatory requirement that says you must not, you know, snoop on people's communications from a privacy point of view, and then you have a regulatory requirement that says. But you must snoop on people's communications in order to see if they're um, illegally transmitting copyrighted material. So you'll get again sometimes the sort of the the two go together. Or you know, and, uh, again, it may be more in that category, a bit like the content filtering. You you just create a, an element of risk such that uh, if you're a mainstream service provider, you are going to snoop for copyright violations, which all of the mainstream service providers do. Um, because it's too high risk not to, you know, the the, the alternative is too risky. Um, that's another, say, classic area where regulation pushes you in both directions simultaneously uh, to deploy a technology or not to deploy a technology. Yes, and and I mean, if we really dig into technological uh, ruins and and the archaeology the technology early on when it comes to copyright, and we sh- we shouldn't spend too much time on this, but it's so exciting. You had these so-called electronic copyright management systems, the yeah. ECMSs, the idea of of a wholly almost isolated system within which every rights-controlled piece would exist. And I don't know if you remember, but the European Commission spent millions on building these ECMSs, and one of them was called. Imp- premature uh it was a system that's being supported by the european commission and it was literally its own monolithic system with which with content could be tracked and traced and when i see nfts today i'm like that's not so far off to your point earlier so maybe the cms has failed because they were implemented in such a clunky way but that you know that vision of a rights-based blockchain that allows yeah. you to control different pieces of content maybe that is now returning in in, in new shape whatever the question is the answer is blockchain nicholas yes okay i'm sorry I, yeah, no. but <laughs> but i want to move on to another category of technologies that is super interesting and that sort of ties into what we've been discussing so far and that is the so-called pets Yes, uh, the privacy-enhancing technologies that were supposed to sort of protect us from from people snooping on us. And privacy-enhancing technologies included encryption, but we can leave that on the side for now. Although you could argue that that encryption is is now more or less embedded in many services. But but it also had the P3P standard, the other kinds of technologies that's supposed to to allow you to negotiate. You remember John Hagel released a book about privacy intermediaries that would take care of your data for you. There's a whole set of there's like a graveyard of technology around privacy why is that do you think yeah is so that the I'll, friction point perhaps uh it i think it is so, so there's um i mean just on the the sort of encryption point again that's another area where the regulation pushes you in opposite directions simultaneously you must keep these communications secure but you must let law enforcement and government access these communications so it's again another one pushes that direction but on the, on the privacy where, where the Privacy enhancing technologies kind of involve more distributed data, data you know, in in the hands of trusted third parties, and and just sort of tokens and things passing, rather than actual data. I, again, I, I think maybe the time will come. I think to date the issue has been friction, and so people talk about things like distributed social networks as an answer to uh, the fact that. Um, there's this large company called Meta that has several uh, big name brand social networks. You know, and so one of the ways you would sort of uh, address that over time is that you would have you'd use more peer to peer technology and have distributed data um, in the hands of lots and lots of different people. But again, I think yes, it's the there the technical friction, the, the fact that 
the performance that you expect is, look, I, I've made a friend, I want to go and see their profile and pull their content uh, out. And I expect that to sort of happen instantly on my phone anywhere in the world for anyone in the world, all this sort of stuff. That the to get that right, to do that in a distributed way is just more complex. There's a lot, a lot more sort of engineering that goes into, um, would go into making that work. And it may be that as the networks get better and as the cost of uh, uh, everything comes down, which it does for the same amount of power, that that we will get to a point quite quickly where um, that's possible. And pe- people talked about building blockchain social networks, um, but as we all uh, you know are <laughs> familiar with from the news, the, the sheer amount of processing power and electricity consumption and so on that's required to generate uh, blockchain tokens of value, tokens of financial worth, is already being called into question. Is it worth that amount of computing power? You know, it's not going to be worth that amount of computing power uh, for somebody to share a photo of their cat with somebody else using a kind of very heavy duty technology. But there may be something in the peer to peer space that is possible. So I think, I think that um, distribution of data, that uh, that element of privacy enhancing technology, where you're no longer sort of aggregating data into big, big spaces where it can all be mashed together, I think is uh, uh, potentially something that's going to be valuable. If anything drives it, I think it's going to be massive data leaks, and we're already seeing some of that. So you, you can actually see a, uh, uh, a market driver for that, that as a business, there's one just recently, this jeweler's called Graph in London, who you know their client list was uh, supposedly hacked, and that includes contact details and purchase details for lots and lots of very high-profile celebrities. And that's potentially hugely damaging for their business. So you can imagine if somebody comes along and says, "Look, I'll replace that system <laughs> with something that is much better, where it's distributed, where where very few people would ever have access to the underlying data." Uh, um, I'm using all of these technologies to to make that lower risk then I think, you know, the market is going to make that very attractive. And the more data breaches there are, the more attractive it becomes, the more worth it is. As long as it fulfills the requirement of of, uh, being frictionless to your earlier point. Because if you you go back to, so one of my favorite pets, everyone has a a favorite privacy enhancing technology, I'm sure. But one of the ones that I I spent time with was this, the P3P standard, Mm. uh, the platform for privacy preferences, uh, which allowed you to, in quite a granular way, to express your sort of privacy preferences but never took off because users didn't take the time so there's like a, a failure mode here that's about usability or or just user cost attention cost the kind of attention you have to spend on something uh, just makes this technology or this standard in this case and the underlying technology not work which which leads us to a sort of a provocative question are privacy settings and dashboard a technological failure I mean, it just it brings us back to our favourite subject, the cookie banners, the great cookie banners, which are an example. That's a privacy-enhancing technology mandated by law. Uh, you know, the European regulation says you must put in place this this uh, this technology where you offer people that choice. Uh, I think the evidence is for a lot of people they're not they're not necessarily, you know, making informed choices. They're more likely just to click to make the thing go away. And I think similarly, this similarly may apply for dashboards. Uh, and again, they may not be engaging. Uh, back to earlier in our discussion, that you may look at them once, and then you're not going to go back. Uh, so there's lots of reasons why why the things where you're making somebody work to express their uh, views or to to control the service that seems 
for the individual, the cost benefit analysis seems not to favor spending a lot of time on it. And partly that's a that's a volume thing. I know, uh, you know people have done these studies where they said, look, if you actually read the privacy policies and the service <laughs> yeah. of the 300 apps that you might download over a year, you know, some of which you just use once and come throw away, like you, you wouldn't have much time to, to do anything else. Uh, you, you raised, I think, that we last talk about the slider thing. I mean, it, it, yeah, there is a there is an issue here about finding ways to do this easily, uh, yeah. finding ways to help people do things easily about l- language, uh, the ways you can do it. And and again, that there will be those who who are suspicious. Um, go back to one of the examples we used in this talk. We talked about uh, the the facial recognition that Facebook deployed. They might argue that the way they did it was was actually the easy way that people would understand, hey, you know, is it okay to use your photos uh, uh, to be able to identify other photos of you? Like It's all about the tagging thing. That was the thing that people understood, and that was enough for them to make an informed choice. Critics will say, no, no, that was a dark pattern. That was them just trying to hide what they were actually doing, and, and they should have had the you know, the, the full explanation with a, with a sort of checkbox thing as you go down through it. I, um, I mean, I think the test is really in, in user research and understanding what people do understand when they look at these uh, things. You know, we'll, we'll make assumptions about it, but I think the real, real test is when you give somebody a, a dashboard or a choice or a banner, you know, do, do they, did they, when you survey them afterwards, have they understood the choice they were making? And how did they feel about the fact they had to make that choice? And would there be other simpler ways to get to the same result of, you know, correctly recording their preference, which is what you're trying to do? And and this, you know, in some, um, I think one of the things that, that what you're saying makes me think is that that we have to be really careful when we talk about uh, technological failure and how we define what it means for a technology to fail, because the technology can fail equally if it has a massive negative impact on society. So yes. a technology to fail is one thing; a technology to disappear is another. And what we've been talking about are technologies that disappear, but there may still be other failure modes for technology, of course that are around but have a net negative impact on society around us in different ways. So the disappearance of a technology and the failure of a technology might actually be very different things. Yes, and, and some technologies just take a long time to succeed. As you, as you may know, one of my other interests these days is uh, electric vehicles, which I'm fascinated yeah. by. And I understand at the start of the 20th century, uh, we had electric and internal combustion vehicles, and there was quite a sort of heated debate about which way to go. And actually, for some modes of public transport, electric one, and we had the trams. Uh, electric trams were quite common, you know, way back when uh, in the 20th century. So that was one. It's time. <laughs> it took a long while to kind of succeed. But, you know, in in uh, 15 years' time, 20 years' time, we are going to be majority electric everywhere. And so you'll have this gap <laughs> between the electric vehicle being invented early part of the 20th century and being in common usage uh, in, say, 2030, 2035. And if the COP conference this week, you know, make, make sufficient commitments, that with that date may come forward still. Um, but certainly by 2040, say, we're going to be the majority electric. So that was one that took a long time to come. And the technology, sadly, that won in the early part of the 20th century, the internal combustion engine vehicle, I think most of us would say, has caused like immense harm in the meantime. You know, had that choice been other, 
then a lot of harms would have been avoided in terms of both global warming and in terms of damage to, to people's uh, health in the meantime. So we can fail in choosing technologies. Technologies can fail. Technologies can disappear mm-hmm. and then reappear and then succeed. And so there's a there's a really interesting almost ecosystem like perspective here. So yeah. so let me finish to I, so I, what what is the one technology or internet service that disappeared that you really wish didn't? Just the, the the went that I really wished hadn't. Ooh, um, yeah, I oh. Actually, so one thing, one thing that this is a this is a piece of hardware actually that in the early um, days of PDAs, personal digital assistants, I had a lovely Linux-based one called a Sharp SL fifty five hundred, I think it was, and it's still mm. I'm fond of that as one of my my favorite computing devices ever, uh, and I, I wish those taken up. That was a time like Linux at the time was not as uh, current as it is now it's now used in t- particularly at the server level like sort of ubiquitous across the the internet and it's the sort of underpinning of uh, or linux like operating systems the underpinning of the macs and things that everybody's using now um uh so that was not an internet service but it's a bit of technology that say i loved it at the time and uh, uh wish those had taken off um at that time and we may i mean just from from you know we talked earlier about the sort of android piece had Linux taken off as a kind of personal device technology in its pure Linuxy form, uh, then we may have ended up with quite a different ecosystem from the one that we have today. Um, mm. Yes. Yeah. What about you? What do you miss? Uh, so I have one specific service in mind that I mm. really liked, that, and that was discontinued in in uh, in the year two thousand. Go- Google Plus. Yeah, <laughs> too soon, too oh, soon, oh, Richard. Sorry, sorry. Too soon. Um, uh, no, it was called Third Voice. Uh, it was a really small service uh, that uh, essentially was a browser plugin that allowed you to do margin notes for web pages. Uh, so if you had a web page and you were reading, there were three different kinds of margin notes. One was uh, accredited editors of Third Voice that could write about the page and say, you know, this is a good page or a bad page. The second was your chosen group. You could build your own group and you could comment on the page in that group. And the third were your own private notes that you could have. So it's like a Third Voice that you that you could add to every single web page. And and over time, it grew enormously in value, but it uh, was sued out of existence because shop owners didn't like people saying, these guys are frauds, they're really bad, you know, warning others. And uh, for copyright reasons, uh, a lot of people felt that it was uh, detracting from the integrity of their content. So mm-hmm. Third Voice ultimately disappeared, although it was it was huge value because it sort of allowed for a for margin margin notes for the web mm. i'm sure there is something like it now but once you start and you invest in it and you sort of then see it disappear you you sort of end up with this you know is it really worth trying to find an alternative to this but i really like that service so i think that's the one that i would that i would mention it was probably acquired away uh as before where you'll get these services that are quite good but as you say find it quite tricky sometimes to stand on their own two feet 
and some other company will come along and snap up their engineers and then roll those features into their service. So which brings me to that. another one, actually, now that you remind yeah. me, which is Aardvark. Do you remember Aardvark? Aardvark? Yes. That was a cool service where yeah. you could suddenly be pinged for your expertise by somebody, you know, randomly across the internet. If you wanted to answer a question about law or a question yeah. about something else, that was that was a bizarre but really interesting piece of technology. Yeah. I think mm. it was designed by a philosopher, actually, which might explain its bizarreness. But yeah, so uh, we have waited for, we have walked through ruins of technology. We looked at how technology disappears, how it sometimes recurs. We've looked at what technological failures are, both the choice of technology and technologies themselves, the battle of concepts and how that affects technologies. And all in all, rather an interesting walk through the graveyard of the past. So we have to make sure we talk about something futury next time. I think. Yeah. <laughs> But, but um, uh, if you don't learn from the past, ah, yeah, yeah. So we should be very good. It is helpful. It is helpful to take stock every now and then um, as we plan for the future. Yes, and we have given the kids a reason to read up on electronic copyright management systems. If nothing else, you should learn about Imprimatur. So we can find this blog. Uh, sorry, this blog. We can find right. this, this. We can find this uh, podcast on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. And thank you so much for listening, and we hope to have you with us in the next episode. Thank you so much. Bye.